You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 135 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm all right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You had to think about that, did you? I did. I've been unwell, but I'm back. So, you know, I'm on the road to recovery, shall we say, but it's kind of thrown my whole week off. Don't you, know you how hate it, that? How it does? Yeah. yeah. I had this whole, like I had to contact about 20 people and say, I can't do this today. And then mm. suddenly everything that you had planned for, you know, Monday, Tuesday becomes Wednesday's problem and it yes. just throws everything out. But anyway, I'm here. You're back. Well, I'm, I'm glad upright. you're feeling better and yes. that you're upright. Yes, being upright is a good thing. It is a good thing. So, okay, we won't go into <laughs> the details of... No, um, it's not. <laughs> it's one of those things, though. I think sometimes it's it's kind of like it's just your body's way of saying you need to lie down for I a while. I know. That's so mm. true. I think mm-hmm. so. And I I'd honestly believe that that was possibly the case because I mm. had got myself into somewhat of a frenzy by about last Friday. So you, um, You've been going hard, especially yeah, I think, with NaNoWriMo. Yeah, I think actually in, you know, I'm looking at myself today and I'm thinking maybe a little bit too hard. So I'm mm. kind of um, thinking that I'm just going to have to ease off the throttle a little bit for so a little while. when you were feeling ill those couple of days, did you do NaNoWriMo? I did. I couldn't do anything. Oh, I, right. Literally, like I have not been. I don't get sick very much, but mm. when I get sick, I get sick. And um, I was. it was one of those honest to goodness, in bed all day, can't move things. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and it was just in, – in some ways it was just kind of a relief because I felt so bad that I couldn't even feel bad about the fact that I couldn't do anything. <laughs> Whereas often the worst part about working from home is that if you feel kind of not great, you still feel like you should be doing something. Yes. Whereas I just – there was just no question. So, you know, you just have to let it go. There's yeah, a little, fair enough. There was a little frozen moment right there. Oh, let my go. goodness. It was. Okay. And if I'd, been, if I'd had the energy to sing, I would have. Okay. Okay. Oh, that would be that uh, next time, next time next when time. when you're fully recovered. All next. right. So we want to give a shout out to CK eight five three eight, and um, thank you so much to CK eight five three eight who's left us a review on iTunes, and they've said this was my first time listening to Valerie and Allison, and that was podcast episode number one hundred and twenty seven, and they've said I am an aspiring author. I enjoyed the episode. I found the content helpful and informative. I especially enjoyed the interview with Jay Kristoff. I will be listening to more. Love their accents since I'm a Midwestern gal in America. <laughs> wow, that's so cool Makes that sense. we're reaching a Midwestern gal in America. Hello, uh-huh. CK8538. No, no, Val. G'day. Oh, yeah, g'day. CK8538. <laughs> <laughs> well, bung on the accent a bit more for you. Oh, stop. I'm, I'm talking like that because last night there was a um, countdown on Music Max on Aussie Pub, uh, Aussie pub Rockers. Oh, and, mate. oh, my God, our household went off. Yeah, it would, went off. <laughs> it was such an Aussie. <laughs> I don't know what the neighbours were thinking, but they were, you know, we were belting, cold chisel, Were the, were the dogs jets. howling as well? They were having such a good time. They were thinking, geez, look, mum and dad are really <laughs> getting into this. <laughs> They're dancing <nuts>. around. 
<laughs> to oh, the dear. Black Sorrows Noise Works. Anyway, this isn't a podcast about Australian rock music. It is, no. so you want to be a writer. It is, Valerie, so thank- we should probably focus. We should probably focus. So thank you, CK8538. Really appreciate it. And, you know, thank you for taking the time to leave us that review. And mm. if anyone else does ha- have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it really helps us in the rankings. So let's move on now to um, our, the world of publishing and writing this week, shall we? Let's do that, Val. What have you got for us? I've got this cool book, which is like so up my alley. <laughs> okay. Everybody, bra- everybody listening is bracing themselves <laughs> as we speak. It's called You're Saying It Wrong. <laughs> Oh, Valerie, it's like it's perfect. (laughs) You're saying it wrong. A pronunciation guide to the 150 most commonly mispronounced words and their tangled histories of misuse by Uh Ross Petras and Catherine Petras. Just, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Petras right. No, Val. (laughs) It's not off to a good start. It's not off to a good start, but I think I'm going to get this book. So I found it because I found it on um, cbc.ca, Canadian news site, which is talking about this book. And it gives a whole range of different um, uh, entries into this book, whether you're saying the word, oh, like, you know, the word Arctic. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, oh, like when people say Arctic. It bothers you, Al? Yeah, it bothers me a little bit. Okay. But here's an interesting thing. Did you know that um, Dr. Seuss, that's not how you pronounce his name? What? Dr. Seuss, that's right. So what this book says is that he, he thought his name, well, he pronounced his name Seuss, rhyming with voice. Ah. And no one else said Seuss. They all said what we say, Dr. Seuss. So he even tried to fight this by, of course, writing something. And he wrote a little ditty, a little poem that goes like this. You're wrong as the deuce and you shouldn't rejoice if you're calling him Seuss. He pronounces it Seuss. But if no one caught on and eventually oh. he gave up and just started calling himself Dr. Seuss because everyone else called him Dr. Seuss. <laughs> he gave up on his own name. Yes. <laughs> Classic. Like so there you go. That and 149 other interesting factoids are in the book. You're saying it wrong. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure you'll have many more of those once you've actually finished reading the book. Yes, definitely. Mm. All right, let's move on to something quite different. And this I found on geek.com. And I was quite an interesting post because it's called How to Write and Publish a Novel, Five Crossroads Your Face. Oh. So this is pretty interesting because these are the actual kind of like um, forks in the road. Now, some of them are really straightforward, like whether you pants it or whether you plot it. Now, that's really mm-hmm. something, the, the crossroad you face quite early mm. and some people well most people they just quite frankly do what works for them right mm. that's right and the other crossroads that they've mentioned is overcoming writer's block which not everyone has so you won't mm-hmm. necessarily uh, be faced with writer's block but the one I like is when you've written the end which, you know, is such a great feeling, of course. Mm-hmm. They say, congratulations, but you're not done. No, you're not. No, you're not done no. because there are so many other things that happen after you've written the end. Mm. And, um, you know, the, some of them are you basically have to rewrite, you have to redraft, you have to get readers in, you have to get opinions, you have to improve and improve and improve. And Mm. sometimes the time it takes uh, for the um, aftermath of the end can sometimes be longer than before the end. Have you found that with any of your books, Al? Oh, it's often the case. I I usually find that um, because I tend to to write my first draft quite quickly um, mm. because that's just my process is to get that first draft down, get the idea out of my head as quickly as possible. And then the actual revising or editing of that um, tends to be a much slower process. So I always, I always go through it myself first and, and, you know, fix whatever I think I can fix at that stage, work mm. through the sort of just a basic edit on my own. Then I read it out loud to one, whichever of my children I can pin down and, mm-hmm. um, 
because it gives me not only reader feedback at the same time, but it just gives me that process of hearing it out aloud. Yes. And then I go through it again. Um, once I, so I mark up as I, as I read out loud, I actually like print the whole thing out. And then as I'm reading it aloud, I mark it up and put post-it notes on it and do all that sort of stuff, which does slow the reading process down and does annoy them at times, but that's just <laughs> how it works. Um, and then I go through that marked up version and, and rework it from that from that point. Mm. Um, then I send it off to, uh, you know, my publisher or my agent taking feedback there as well. Usually I discover that I've started the story in the wrong place mm. and I lop off the first chapter and start again. So yeah, that all of that process, like I might get a first draft down in maybe six or seven weeks. Mm. Um, but the actual process of getting it to a point where I'm happy enough to, um, to, to, to declare it even ready for a structural edit, mm. uh, takes probably at least another, I don't know, two to three months. On yeah, top of that. right. Yeah. So when you send it off to your agent or publisher or someone who's maybe not your children, but like other, you know, other people, mm. do you, at any point when you send that off, do you have a feeling mm, there's something just not quite right about chapter seven or whatever, but I can't put my finger on it and hope that they will come up with it, or is everything they is all their feedback? news to you you know what I mean well it tends to be I like because I I do go through it quite thoroughly so I try to and obviously I'm getting a lot better at this as I the more books I write and the more structural edits I do mm. and this is a really this is very much a practice thing mm. um because the more that you sort of go through things uh at the more you go through this process the more that you start to see things for yourself you know right from the start so when I send it to them I I think it's pretty good like I think it's it's pretty much like pretty much correct. And then they will come back to me and say, actually, you don't need that scene in the middle of the book at all. Yeah, and right. I'll be like, what do you mean? And then we have to discuss it. Um, but usually what happens is that once I've read their feedback and thought about it a bit, I can see that they're right. Like it's just a matter of you, you do tend to be quite attached to things. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, particularly if you think you've done something that's pretty good yeah. or, you know, good enough. Um, mm. So it then it's that whole thing of, well, do I take this feedback on board? Do I tweak it? Do I, you know, what do I do? And that's the other thing that you get better at with practice is knowing what you, what's really important to keep mm. and knowing what you, what you need to let go of. Um, because I think sometimes when you first start out, people, people say, oh, you must be so overprotective, but you're actually not because you're trying very hard to please a publisher or please an agent. Yes. And I think sometimes you can make the mistake of letting go of things that you actually probably should hold on to. And right. I think probably now as I'm more practiced and I've had more experience, I've got a much keener eye for no, that's got to stay. Yep. So to give you an example, in my new series, which I'm working on at the moment, when I sent my first uh, manuscript through for, for the first book, my publisher came back to me and she said to me, do we need this character? I'm thinking we could lose this entire character. Oh. And I went back to her. I thought about it and I got some feedback from my beta readers and I went back and I said, no, I'm not losing that character. I'm going to keep that character. Mm -hmm. What I'm going to do is bump that character up so that she has – more of a role to play so that you don't think she's, right. you know, additional. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's what I ended up doing and I'm really happy with the results of that. So I kept her. I could have gone, yeah, 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 we could lose her, but I mm. didn't – I wanted her, so I kept her. Yes. Yeah, there mm. is a balance, isn't there, because mm -hmm. obviously the converse is also true because there are some people who will not take anything on board from their publisher no, that, and will fight right. tooth and nail on things that really don't matter. <laughs> that's right, and that's what I think you need to – that's what I think experience brings you as well. It's just that notion mm. of what is important here and what is not. And, you know, the scene in the middle of the book wasn't important because I was able to put the information that I needed from that scene into other places – the character, however, I, you know, I felt she had a really important role to play and I had probably done her a disservice by mm. not making that role clearer. So what I needed to do was clarify her role so that when the publisher read her again, it was like, yes, now I understand why she's there. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's something that you learn as you go along. Absolutely. Okay. And so you also have a link for us, don't you? Which was well, from Writer's Digest. It is from Writer's Digest. And it's a, it's a really cute little link. It's about, uh, it's called What No One Tells You About Page Proofs, Blurb Requests and More. Mm. And it's written by Jessica Strausser or Strausser. I'm not exactly sure how you would pronounce that. That I would, would say be Strausser. in that book. 
It would be in the book, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. She she's in the process of having uh, she's writing sort of like a, a series of blog blog posts about the path to publication of her novel, um, and her book is coming out in spring uh, next year from St Martin's Press. But she's talking about the fact that. Um, she's reached that path in the process where all the little bits and pieces about publishing that you don't know about until you actually are having a book uh, mm. published come up. And there's a few of those things that, re- that quite surprised me as well. One of them was the author questionnaire, um, which I didn't expect. I probably should have. Um, so you've done your revision requests, you've done your structural edit, it's gone over, you know, you've done your copy edits and things like that. And, and then you get sent this questionnaire from your publisher and it's quite a long and involved questionnaire. Like it's mm. a really complex, you know, it's, it's not just a 10 question thing, mm. but it's all, it's, it's, it's about, you know, connections you might have that could be relevant to your book's marketing. It's about stories, the story of the book, like where the book came from so that they can work that into the book marketing. It's about, um, any social media things that you have. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, thing of, it suggests, you know, it's a, it's like, what organizations are you part of? You know, who do you talk to? Do you have any media relations? Mm. All of that kind of stuff, because what they're trying to do, um, is basically get an idea on who they can get in touch with to help promote your book. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's quite a big document and it's quite a confronting document because you sit there and, you know, she sort of says, um, you know, she got the document and she said, gee, I guess I should have spent less time writing and more time participating in community organisations. <laughs> <'cause she laughs> yeah. you know. um, I, like, yeah. I like how it says, do you know any Kardashians who might yeah. be interested <laughs> in posting Instagram photos with your book? Exactly how many of them do you know? <laughs> That's right. And how well do you know them? And, you know, have you been to dinner with them or was it just a drink? <laughs> I'm sure they're um, being facetious, but yes, we get the point. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's worth, um, and, and I think think that this is an uh, it comes back to the, the things we talk about with you know um, developing your author platform and we talk about networking and I think when you get a questionnaire like that you start to see some of the reasons why we talk about this stuff because yes. those connections that you make through the networking that you do online and offline they, they do matter you know in a, in a lot of different ways um, so it's definitely worth um, you know starting early with that stuff because if you even if you don't have your novel published when that author questionnaire ha- you know lands on your desk you're going to want to be able to go oh yes well I you know I know Chloe Kardashian and she loves me <laughs> <laughs> or <Yes>. similar <laughs> I like the one um, that it talks about endorsement blurbs and Mm. it says that while your manuscript is being, you know, copy edited or typeset or whatever, you'll be asked to seek out endorsement blurbs and those are the quotes from other established authors or they don't necessarily have to be authors but they often are, uh, who are singing the praises of your book and they, you know, say what a fantastic read it was or how mesmerising it is, how it's the best thing they've ever read and their little quote goes on to your book but it can also go on to promotional materials like press releases and and so on and you're asked to you know get these quotes from people you know and I often find it interesting when I see books and they're the first so the entire back cover and some of the front cover and the first like five pages are full of blurbs now I think that can be a bit going a bit overboard. Yeah. What's definitely. your opinion or position on on blurbs, on getting them, on getting how many and who you should get? Well, I I mean, to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of experience in getting endorsement blurbs because um, I don't know, children's fiction doesn't seem to no, they don't really much. get that. Yes, that's no. true. So I, I did have the experience of um, when I when I co-wrote uh, Career Mums a few years ago, uh, we were looking for endorsements for the cover of that. And um, I was very, very lucky and quite chuffed that um, Lisa Wilkinson agreed to do a, a um, put a quote on that and they mm. put it right on the front cover. It was like the biggest thing on the page was the, yeah. was the endorsement from her. Look, I think it's, um, I think it's an incredibly useful thing if somebody um, – somebody, you know, influential blurbs your book. Yes. But I have to say, I don't think I've ever bought a book based on an endorsement. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I've ever bought a book because, you know, somebody I liked, an author I liked, you know, liked the book. It's not, it's not kind of the way right. I go about buying books. Uh, I think you're right. However, if I ask myself the same question, um, I agree with you. I don't think I've bought a book because of an endorsement, but I've actually not bought a book 
because of certain endorsements. Oh, that's a good story. Do you want yes. to tell us more about that? No, I mean like when you get endorsements and you feature them, say on the front cover or back cover, wherever, and they're from no one you've ever heard of. Mm. So it just seem, seems a bit desperate. Mm. Or they're from, you know, some organisation that, uh, that, yeah, no one's ever heard of and or is not relevant to the book. Mm. And so sometimes I see people, this is more so in nonfiction, where, and I'm referring to the ones where they have pages and pages of every endorsement by their mother, brother, cousin, uh, anyone they ever went to school with, anyone in their entire life, and they're featuring it. And I think that less is more. I think if you, as you say, you got Lisa Wilkinson, which is great. If you get an influential, uh, one influential person is better than five or 50 people that other people haven't heard of. Well, I'm not saying true. you shouldn't put it, say, you know, on your website or whatever if you've got a section for testimonials, but there's such it's such a valuable real estate, your mm. cover and that's right. the space in your book. Mm. That's right. Very true. Okay. Well, anyway, that's an interesting one. So mm. we'll put that link and, of course, the links to anything else that we refer to in the episode in the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. So let's move on to our giveaway, the biggest giveaway we've ever done, which is running mm. for the month of November. It's, it's been o- massive. It's been massive. It's go. It's open until the 30th of November and I can't wait to award the winner. It's going to be so exciting because they're going to win a Microsoft Surface Pro 4 valued at $2,799. Wow. And there are various ways you can enter, but it's super easy to enter. You just need to complete the sentence A, surface would help me create Mm. dot 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 so we want you to think about you know what you want to create to boost your own creativity your entry should be no more than 25 words but to find out where you can post your entry just go to writercenter.com.au slash surface life that's writercenter.com.au slash surface life and good luck because we hope Mm. one of you enter I've seen some amazing entries. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. Very, very exciting. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing Course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online over a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash advanced. I'll be ready for our word of the week, Al. We are so ready. Okay, so I have been watching Netflix and I have been binge watching The Crown. Have you been watching The Crown? Not yet, Val. I remember I've had to, I've just had to even put off subscribing to Netflix until I get through my current workload. Yeah, so, but I'm sure I'll get to it. Oh, it's so good. It's about Queen Elizabeth. It's so good. Anyway, this word was used Mm. Um, metier, M E T I E R. Metier. So even though many people know this word, I don't think it's in common usage. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was inspired to include it because I saw it on The Crown. And what happened was Winston Churchill, who was played by John Lithgow, he's going to win awards for this, mm-hmm. um, was speaking to the artist, like a portraiture artist, who was painting his portrait. And the artist admits that he came to painting quite late in life. And uh, after that, Churchill says, in your search for your metier, you've tried a bit of everything. Mm. And of course, metier means a trade or profession or some kind of skill you're proficient in. Do mm. you use metier much? No, I don't use it often. No. I have to said. It's Me one neither. of those words that you, yeah, no. That you know, but you hardly you know, use. but you don't necessarily use. Yes. Yeah. Well, mm. they used it in the crown and I thought, oh, I can make that the word of the and week. And you thought, gosh, I'm going to share that. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to our writer in residence this week? Let us. Now, I had to interview this author. 
Right. Laura Greaves. Now, she's been a journalist for most of, it, most of her adult life and she's also written a couple of commercial women's fiction books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this December she is releasing uh, her latest book. It's a non-fiction book and I just know that it's going to go off because everyone who is going to – everyone is going to buy this – as a gift for people who have dogs because this is a book called Incredible Dog Journeys, Amazing True Stories of Exceptional Dogs. (laughs) 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 Uh, I had to interview her because I thought this is such a cool book and also how did she find out about the dog journeys? Did she talk to the dogs? That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Did they have words about this? One of my um, boys is reading The Call of the Wild at the moment and that's a bit of an epic dog journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there are 18 epic dog journeys in this book. So uh, let's have a listen to Laura and how she got them. Thanks so much for joining us today, Laura. Thanks for having me. Now, you've written this awesome book, Incredible Dog Journeys, Amazing True Stories of Exceptional Dogs. And um, it's it's as soon as I saw it, I went, I need to talk to Laura. <laughs> <laughs> now, for readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? I mean, the, I know that the title is sort of self-explanatory, but if you could just tell us in your own words, because I'm sure this book is going to go off, you know, especially with Christmas coming up. So tell us. (laughs) I hope you're right. I do think it's a a great stocking stuffer type gift. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the title, you're right, the title is quite self-explanatory. It kind of does what it says on the tin, this one. Um, (laughs) So Incredible Dog Journeys is a collection of 16 nonfiction stories about dogs that have done amazing things and overcome enormous odds in order to get home to the people who love them, to their Mm. their humans, their families. Mm. Absolutely. And what made you think of writing this book? You know, (laughs) it was really interesting the way it came about. Um, I have two romantic comedy novels published by Destiny, which is Penguin Random House's digital first uh, romance imprint. Yes. So obviously through that, I got to know some of the people who work for Penguin. Yes. Um, and one of those people um, is also involved with the Michael Joseph imprint, which mm-hmm. is one of their, um, you know, commercial um, imprints. Mm-hmm. And she was tasked with um, producing a dog book. Oh. Um, and she thought, oh, my goodness, I don't know anything about dogs. <laughs> Who am I going to get to write this book? Mm-hmm. And then she thought, luckily for me, aha, I know a crazy dog lady. <laughs> <laughs> because I must admit, I do wear my dog nut credentials proudly on my sleeve. Um, both my novels have, um, you know, very extensive supporting cast of canine characters. Um, so she came to me and said, is this something you would be interested in doing? And, of course, I said, um, yes, please, let's do that. Mm you know, immediately. Mm. <laughs> um, so I put together a big list of ideas um, for, for for dog books, basically. Right, right. Um, sent that to her. She discussed it with, um, you know, the various departments there um, and came back and said, this is the one we want. We want the one about the dogs who find their way home to their people. And so it all snowballed from there. Wow. Isn't it funny that she was tasked with, hey, you need to do a dog book. Like I wonder yeah. what a dog book is apart from, you know, stories about dogs um I I, what were some of the other ideas um well one of them was dogs with jobs which is actually the book that I'm writing now Ah. which will be the follow-up to incredible dog journeys that comes out um mid next year I think um that's another one that's fairly self-explanatory that's about working dogs but but not not the working dogs not just the kind of farm dogs and the police dogs and the guide dogs that we think of but Mm. all kinds of interesting and unusual canine occupations Mm. so that was on the list as well um Goodness, I'm trying to think now. There were so many. I, I must admit this was pretty much a dream gig. So yes. as soon as she said, give me your ideas, I said, oh, here's all of them. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> every idea I've ever had about, you know, writing about dogs. Mm. Um, there was another one that was about, I think I called it Rough Diamonds or something, R-U-F-F. Mm. Um, and it was about, it was going to be about dog breeds that people tend to associate as being you know, quote unquote, bad dogs, right. um, you know, things like pit bulls and things yeah. like that. But it was going to be about 
beautiful dogs of those breeds. Yes. Um, you know, who, who dogs that had done amazing things. Um, yeah. so that's still a bit of a passion project of mine because I'm very much, um, anti breed specific legislation, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would actually really love to write that book someday. So that's one I'm going to keep, keep pitching to them. <laughs> wow. Now you must have dogs. I do. Yes. I have two dogs. And what are they? What are their names? They are Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers, which most people have never heard of. Yeah. (laughs) Toller is the shorthand version. Um, They look a little bit like border collies, but they're red. Um, Okay. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're called Tex and Delilah. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Gorgeous. (laughs) Now, um, when you started thinking, okay, when you knew this was the book that it was going to be, The Incredible Dog Journeys, how did you go about researching this? Because it is um, 18 incredible stories. So how did you find the stories and and then determine which ones made the cut? Sure. Well, I had so much fun doing the research for this book. I can't even tell you. It was it was such a laugh. Um, well, as I mentioned, I am a crazy dog lady. I've been involved with kind of the dog world for quite a while. And I've been a freelance journalist now for going on eight, nine years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, I spent 15 years working for newspapers and magazines. Um, and one of the magazines I worked for, I was actually the editor of it, was Dog's Life magazine, awesome. which is the, the leading uh, dog publication in Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, So through my work, I was there for a couple of years and and through that work, I got to know a lot of people in in the dog world from everywhere from, you know, breeders to trainers to people in animal welfare and rescue. Mm. So when I was um, looking for stories, the first thing I did was go back to all of those people, everyone I'd ever met who was remotely doggy. Yes. And said, you know, tell me, do you know these stories? Do you know any stories that would would fit the bill? Um, I also asked friends. I asked my friends to ask all their friends. Um, I really did cast the net wide. Um, so I got a lot of really great stories, um, that way. And then just the good old internet. I just Googled, um, a lot, um, because I did have some idea of, I'd really love this type of story or that type of story. Um, so with a bit of, um, constructive Googling, I managed to to track down some stories that way. And also there was a bit of, um, synchronicity to it because no sooner had I started writing this book than it was like the universe knew. And all of a sudden Mm. my Facebook feed would be full of these sort of stories and news items about a dog that had done this or that. And yeah, yeah, things just seemed to find me as I was looking for them, which was very helpful actually. (laughs) Fantastic. And without giving too much away, can you mention some of your favorite stories from the book? Absolutely. Um, oh my goodness. They are all my favorites. <laughs> so I'm sure that's why they yeah. made the final cut. <laughs> that's right. It's like kind of choosing a, a favorite child, yeah. but there are a couple in particular that, that stand out. Um, so the stories come from all around the world. Um, there are lots of Australian stories, obviously, but there's also stories from the U S um, from the UK. Um, and my favorite American story um, is this one about a woman called Rose who lives in um, Arizona Mm-hmm. and she and her I'm sorry I, I, I immediately go teary when I start thinking oh. about it's so it's just so beautiful oh. so I'm sorry if my voice wobbles a bit but oh. um Rose had two dogs called um um oh my goodness now you're asking <laughs> she had two dogs put it that way mm-hmm. and she and they um, would travel all around America and have all these wonderful adventures together Billy and Heffy were the names of the dogs. Yes. They've come back to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, so one weekend they were coming back in Rose's luxury motor home from a weekend away and they were involved in just the most horrific accident. Mm. Um, the motor home was basically obliterated. Rose was ejected from the vehicle. She broke every bone, literally every bone in her body. Mm. Um, very sadly, Heffy died in the accident. Um, and mm. Illy, the other dog, vanished, ran off into the desert. And, um, people thought that was it. Everyone was telling Rose, this dog would be so badly injured. There's no way she could have survived this. Um, but Rose refused to give up hope. And then slowly hundreds of people came together and kind of ventured out into the desert in, in, in search parties looking for this dog. And, um, you know, it's not giving too much away when you know that the book is called Incredible Dog yes. Journey to, to reveal that, um, she did in fact find her way home after three and a half months. 
Um, and even more incredibly, when she was found, she had paired up with another dog that had oh. been lost in the desert, and that dog was able to be returned home as well. <laughs> so, yeah, amazing, amazing. It's That's so inspiring, isn't it, when you read these sorts of stories? Whether you have a dog or not, they're just such incredible stories. Yeah, they are. And what they really underscore for me is just that bond that yeah. people have with their dogs. And, I mean, dogs will do anything for their people. Yeah. and the stories in this book just absolutely confirmed that for me. Not that I ever really doubted it, but just the links that some of these dogs went to. There's another story in the book about a dog that was stolen and was found 10 years later Mm. and still recognized her original owner. Mm. And, you know, it was just, just incredible. How did you, uh, actually, how many stories do you think were on the long, long, long list? And how did you then determine which ones made it? Mm -hmm. I think probably I probably had around 25, maybe 30 stories that I was keen to to pursue or to look into. Yeah. Um, Some of those just didn't get up because I couldn't get in touch with people or – you know, some, I mean, it was really interesting on the research side of things, how I actually found people because mm. it wasn't just as simple as, you know, here's a newspaper article and you look, you look them up in the white pages and then you phone them up. Like, yeah. Tell us an example. Um, well, there was, um, one, for example, there was a, there was a story out of, um, this little island off the coast of Seattle in the U.S., um, where these two dogs went missing and they were found a week later and one of them had fallen into a disused well and her companion had sat there next to the well for uh, the entire week mm. um, watching over her and only leaving her to, to try and find help, which mm. is the journey part of it. She would journey out of this ravine that they'd fallen into um, to try and attract attention and, and try and get somebody to follow her back into the woods mm. where her, her mate was. Amazing. Mm. Um but so I knew the owner's name, but I couldn't find him. Right. So eventually through this kind of weird internet paper trail, yeah. I found someone who'd written a blog, someone based on that tiny island who had wow. written a blog about this happening and from the tone of the blog seemed to know the dog's owner. Right, right. So I actually emailed the person who ran the blog to say, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. Would you mind, you know, if you know this this man, can you give me his details or can you get him to call me? Or, mm. And yeah, we managed to connect finally, which was, which was great because it's a wonderful fantastic. story. Yeah. But it wasn't always straightforward tracking people down. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide on the structure of each story? Cause they're all self-contained stories, but how did you decide when to start the story or, or, um, you know, the, the order in which you wanted to present the information in each story? Um, I guess I kind of approached it as long form journalism um, because, you know, being a magazine feature writer, telling these types of stories, um, is basically what I do. Um, this was just in a much longer format. Um, but I also faced kind of challenges, I suppose, because in a lot of the cases, all I really knew was that a dog had been seen at this place and then, X number of days, weeks, months, years later yeah. turned up in this place. So there was a little bit of um, detective work in terms of piecing together what had actually transpired in the interim. Like there's one story in the book um, about a dog from Newcastle called Oki mm, who vanished, yes. vanished in a thunderstorm mm. and was found three days later in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, 150 kilometres away. Um, and the... RSPCA are the ones who picked him up and they deduced from the state of his feet that he had actually run all the way from Mm. Newcastle to Sydney over a period of about 48 hours. Mm. Um, So that was great. I mean, you know, we effectively knew what had happened, but I then had to pull out all these maps (laughs) um, because they thought he'd followed the train line. So I then had to pull out all these maps and figure out, you know, oh, he would have passed he would have had to cross this many creeks. Yeah. And at this point, his path would have veered right next to the Pacific motorway. Um, and here he would have gone past a sewage works. And what must that have smelled like to a dog's sensitive mm-hmm. nose? And, and so through doing things like that, I was able to paint a picture, I suppose, of what the journey had been like for yeah. the dog. 
Um, so I was really keen to not just say dog disappeared here, dog turned up <laughs> here, but to to really put the reader in the paws, if you like, of the dog yes. as they were on the journey. Wow. And um, how long – can you give us an idea of some timelines of, you know, when you decided to embark on the book and the period mm-hmm. of time you researched, then the period of time that you wrote it, just some milestones kind of thing? Sure. Um well, once we actually got, once I actually had the green light from Penguin, once mm. contracts were signed and everything, um, I had about four months altogether yeah. um, to, to turn the book around and it's 75,000 words. Yeah. Um, but I never thought, oh my God, I have four months to write a 75,000 word book. I thought I've got this many weeks to do interviews and this many weeks to transcribe those interviews yeah. and then X, Y, Z. Um, so... It actually worked out that I wrote the manuscript, 75,000 words, in six weeks, um, which was stressful and I would not recommend that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, My plan was to spend two full months just writing, but because some of the dog owners proved difficult to track down and because some of them are on the other side of the world where you've got to take into account time differences to do interviews and that kind of stuff, um, the interviewing portion of proceedings took a little bit longer than anticipated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it did end up being a very intense six week period of just, um, every free moment, basically (laughs) staring at the screen tapping away. So it was fun though. It was, it was, I really actually enjoyed (laughs) as stressful as it was at times. I really did enjoy just being in it, in that flow and just, you know, powering through it and telling these stories and making myself cry and making myself <laughs> well up and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, so pres- presumably you decided to do the interviewing and research first and once that was done, then you started doing the writing. You didn't kind of like intersperse them or, or anything. Yeah. Um, well, towards the um, later stages of that four-month period when I really did have to get cracking with the writing, um, there was a little bit of overlap where I was still doing the odd interview while also writing. Um, and I think maybe a, a different writer, potentially a more organised writer, <laughs> would have been writing the whole time, yeah. you know, that four-month period. Um, just for me, just for the way I like to work, I wanted to have all my information there next to me you know, a big stack of um, transcribed interviews that I could just dip in and out of yeah. and together. Yeah, it's interesting actually the way, you know, different different authors work and on, on non-fiction projects like this because my, my novels were obviously an entirely different yeah. fish. So speaking of your novels, now as you said you've written fiction, uh, Be My Baby and The X Factor, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about those books and how they differ in terms of your approach to, to writing because this is non-fiction and they're completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Be My Baby was very different in that it took me about 10 years to write. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm a terrible procrastinator. <laughs> um, and also I didn't have a contract or a deadline. I was purely mm. just writing that, you know, on spec. So there was no real um, impetus to, to have it done by a certain period of time. Mm. Um, the X Factor... Um, also didn't have a deadline as such. Um, but I knew that my publisher, I knew that Penguin would be interested in reading it. Um, and also I was about to have a baby (laughs) when I was writing that. So I wanted to get as much of that written as I possibly could before giving birth. Um, and then after I had my daughter, I didn't finish that book for about six more months. I just, you know, gave myself time to kind of figure out how to work the baby and everything. Um, And then, and then picked it up again and and managed to finish it off quite quickly after that. Oh, good. And so it's, can you, when you, this particular book, when you were in the writing phase, did you, um, so with, with the dog book, when you're in the writing phase, did you have a particular, um, routine or word count goal or or anything like that? How did you approach the actual writing? Did you write for two hours or did you write for eight hours a day? You know, just give us an idea of that. Well, um, my daughter goes to daycare two days a week. So those days were writing, you know, nonstop yeah. writing, sort of head down, tail up, you know, don't even break for food kind of thing. Um, and then on the other days, I would write whenever she was asleep. Um, Mm. 
fortunately she was still sleeping at that stage about two hours, sometimes three hours a day. So that was a good chunk um, yeah. of writing time. Um, and then I also had to use a lot of weekends too. I mean, there were some days where I would write 12 hours on a Saturday or wow. you know, yeah, it was pretty exhausting. Um, and I know it's not, you know, being down a coal mine or anything, but it's it's <laughs> mentally really taxing. Um, so with this book that I'm doing now, I'm trying to avoid having to do those really long, intense stretches. Yeah. Um, in terms of word count, I knew that obviously I had this many stories and this many words to fill. So each story needed to be roughly, I think it was roughly 3,000 words. Mm. Um, and I know that if I get a good stretch of, of uninterrupted writing time, I can do um, I can do one one chapter or one three thousand word story in a day. Yep, um, like in about sort of six hours or so. Okay, that's pretty. Yeah, yeah that's. Yeah, I mean, and also you have the discipline of your journalism background, so you know how to meet a deadline. <laughs> Yes, that's right. And in fact, sometimes I think journalism has ruined me for um, other creative projects because <laughs> I literally can't work without a deadline. I, mean, if I, I know if what I you mean. Have, yeah, if I'm not up against it, I just think, oh, I'll do it later. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. Not ideal. <laughs> now, this has obviously kicked off something because you're already working on your next book, Working Dogs. Mm-hmm. And so um, do you feel that this is going to start a whole new series of dog books for you? You're going to become the dog lady? Um, I'm not really sure. I wouldn't mind if that happens. Um, but the reason that the second one came about so quickly was that, um, Penguin weren't initially going to publish incredible dog journeys until early next year. Um, but once I delivered it, they liked it so much. And I guess they saw the potential for it as a a Christmas type book. It's going to go off at Christmas. Yeah, I, can, I already know. <laughs> mm. um, so they decided to, to bring it out earlier and that then left a hole in next year's publishing publishing schedule for another book of this type. Yeah, right. Um, which was how, how we got the go-ahead for Dogs With Jobs. When do you have to turn that in? Um, Mid-January is the deadline for that one. It was supposed to be early January, but I've been really unlucky this year with illness and I've just oh. had a whole raft of horrible lurgies. So mm. I, I begged and pleaded for a couple of extra weeks and thankfully they're very accommodating. <laughs> yeah, I often find that as journalists we take the deadline seriously and it often astounds me when a publisher will come back to me two weeks before the deadline and say, do you want more time? And I'm like, oh, my God, don't stuff up my, my mentor now. Why would you yeah. say that? I know. And I've read these, you know, interviews with, like, literary authors when they talk about how they turn their book in three years late. And I'm know. like, what? How, how did you get away with that? How exactly. are you not just dying of stress? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And anyway, and not just stress but just of embarrassment that you didn't do what you agreed to. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I can't. I can't miss deadlines or not without, you know, profuse apologies and terrible guilt. (laughs) Now what is this consuming your working life at the moment or are you doing other writing things? It is consuming my working life. Yeah. Um, I have basically stopped um, doing freelance magazine work for the time being. Right. Um, just because I literally have no other time. Um, And I, I've I've actually got a novel in progress as well, um, which my, my, my stupid plan. And I don't know what I was thinking, but my plan was that I could do them simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got pneumonia and had to go to hospital oh. and thought, well, that was silly. Yes. <laughs> I, w- I probably won't do that now. I'll just, fi- I'll do the novel later mm. <laughs> and finish the one that, um, that does have a deadline. All right. I just want to circle back to fiction because that will, you're now writing your, or you're soon going to be writing your third novel. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your creative process there in terms of, do you just start with a premise or do you already know the ending or have you already got a story mapped out in your head? Just give us an idea of, um, you know, how you actually approach the building of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, you know, I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with the whole plotter versus pantser um, debate. Well, I'm very much a plotter. Uh Um, most of the writers I know are pantsers, but maybe it's the journalism background again. I don't Mm. know, but I like to, um, you know, get my head around the structure of things, um, before I set out. Um, which is not to say that I don't 
allow room for things to change. Um, I remember in writing my second novel, The X Factor, I wrote myself into a corner um, and I couldn't figure out how to solve this plot problem for months mm. um, and still keep to the structure or the outline that I'd, that I'd written for myself. Um, and then I finally, you know, the solution just occurred to me one day and, and it did go in a whole different direction. Um, but you know, that was okay. At least I, I kind of had parameters that I was working within. Um, so with the third one, I actually, I sat down one afternoon to just do the dot points, Mm. the kind of key story beats that I wanted to hit. And next thing I knew I'd written myself a 5,000 word outline. Wow. (laughs) Which even for me as a plotter is a little bit extreme. I've never, (laughs) I've never gone quite into that much detail before, but the novel is um, a romantic urban fantasy. So it's very different from my first two novels and involves lots of kind of mythical creatures and, and everyone's got magic powers and all that kind of stuff. So I really felt that I needed to have that written down just so that I knew exactly who did what and, you know, what the kind of rules of that world were before I actually started the writing. And why did you decide to do a romantic urban fantasy, which is very different to a book about dogs and just, you know, regular novels, adult novels? Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, I love to read it. It's probably my Uh, favourite fiction genre to read. mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do love chick lit or romantic comedy, which is what my first two novels would be um, classified as. But, yeah, I just love it, a bit of magic. I just – especially – the American urban fantasy where it's all set in the South and it's all very Gothic and there's lots of, you know, vampires and all these dark deeds going on. I just love that world. There's something so appealing about it. And I'd had this idea kicking around for a while and I'd actually written it, um, as a screenplay. Oh yeah. Um, and just kind of thought, no, I think it needs more, um, it needs a bigger canvas really to actually, to explore all the issues and the ideal ideas that I think need to be addressed as part of this idea. So I just thought I'd I'd give it a try really as a novel or or as prose and kind of see how it worked out. You know how you – So good. (laughs) Oh, good. Um, You know how you said that there's something really appealing about it? Mm -hmm. What is really appealing about it? I'm keen to know. That genre, do you mean? Yeah, about that world that you obviously love. Sure. Well, what I really like about it – is that in that world, nobody is all good or all bad. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's really the central theme of the novel that I'm writing. Um, It's, you know, how we live in a world where there are shades of light and shades of dark or good and evil or whatever you want to call it not just in the people around us, but in ourselves, you know, we, we both, we have both of those things in each of us and it's about choosing the path that we want to walk. And that's yeah. very much the, the, the dilemma that my heroine faces in this new novel. Um, so I just think that that really appeals to me because I love thinking about and looking into and learning about what makes people tick and what makes us do the things we do. So putting that in a kind of magical setting, mm. um, it's just, yeah, it was just too delicious a prospect to, um, to not pursue. Yeah, fair enough. And so if you um, are giving some advice to aspiring writers who hope to be, you know, in a position where they have published either novels or nonfiction books, mm-hmm. what would your advice be to them who, you know, if, they have, if they're not there yet, what mm-hmm. should they be doing? Um. You know, this is probably not a very popular um, viewpoint, but I think you, you just have to write. Um, mm. And it sounds so simple, but, I mean, it took me 10 years to write my first book. <laughs> and, and in that 10 years, when I wasn't writing, I was still thinking of myself as a writer. And I was, you know, reading the, the books about which agents I should query and all the rest mm. of it. And I finally got to a point where I just thought, well, that's just pointless because I don't have a book. <laughs> so I realized that it, it, it can be very exciting and very alluring, I think, thinking about that world of publishing and, and, and how you would approach your career as an author. Yeah. But until you've got a book or, you know, a, a manuscript, you can't have a career. Yeah. Um, 
So you have to prioritize the writing. You have to knuckle down, um, you know, schedule it in. I have to schedule it these days, you know, yes. like on the days when my daughter is at daycare, people always say, oh, let's have coffee or let's have lunch. And I have to say, I can't. I just have to stare at my screen and, <laughs> and write because otherwise I won't get the chance. So you have to be a little bit selfish about prioritizing that time, I think, yeah. um, and especially not feeling guilty about it. Um, which is a challenge. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that is my advice is to just um, close yourself off from all the, the, the fun distractions of what agent you'd like to sign with or which publisher you'd like to be with and just focus on writing the best book you possibly can. Absolutely brilliant advice. And on that note, thank you so much for talking to us today, Laura. Thanks, Valerie. It's been lovely. There we go, Laura Greaves on incredible dog stories. Well, incredible dog journeys. Now, have you and Procrasty Pup or has Procrasty Pup been on any incredible dog journeys? <laughs> no, Procrasty Pup goes, you know, around the block and, and uh, around the backyard pretty much. No epic dog journeys for him as yet. The same with my doggies. So mine, yeah, they're not so adventurous as the ones that she talked to, I suppose. No, no. Well, let us move on to our working writer's tip this week. All right, what have you is, got for us? We have a question from Natalie. Now, the question is, hi, Val and Al. Thanks so much for a great podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed every episode. As I'm nearing the end of the writing process for my first novel, I have a question regarding submitting it to agents and publishers. I'm Australian, but currently live in Hong Kong due to my husband's job. My novel is set between contemporary rural America and 16th century England due to fantasy and historical elements of the story. However, my protagonist is a young American who spent her early childhood in the UK. Wow, this is a transcontinental story, right? Mm. My husband is North American and my parents are European, hence the exploration of different cultures and locations. Because I'm Australian, should I submit this novel to Australian agents or publishers first or would I be better sending it to the US given that's where the story is mostly set? Help. Many thanks for your advice, Natalie. Whew. Mm. There you go. Wow. Okay. Mm. Just take a deep breath as we think about that. Yes, that's right. Hmm. What do you think? <laughs> I, think I asked the question. I read that whole big long thing. You did, and you did a splendid job. Um, <laughs> I think that my instinct would be to go where I have contacts, if I have any contacts at all. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure where Natalie, um, if she's sort of set up with her Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts, but I'm just wondering, I would be going where I know most about the market probably. So I would be looking to see, um, you know, where I've done most of my research. Has she done any research at all? Um, given the book's uh, setting, et cetera, mm. it, would, it, it would definitely translate into the US market. So yep. she could... Uh, definitely take it to the US, um, but then an Australian agent could also potentially get it, you know, into the, with right sales into the US for her. So I think I would be going where I'm most comfortable, and that to me would be where I have done the most research and have yep. made some contacts. Definitely. What would that be your thinking? Yeah, because I, I do agree that Australian agents can sell it into the US or have pr processes that can do that. I think that in the US, you kind of need an agent, um, whereas mm -hmm. in Australia, you can approach either an agent or a publisher. So in a yeah. sense, you've got more options in Australia. I think it's um, A, where you have the most contacts, just like Alison said, but also B, where you have built a platform. So mm -hmm. if you have, if your author platform is bigger in Australia, I, I'd say start with Australia first. But mm -hmm. if your author platform is bigger in the US, and potentially that's possible because you, there's more population in the US, mm. then go for the US. Mm. And I think that if you've got no author platform at all or very little of an author platform because you might be thinking, well, I haven't published my novel yet or I haven't finished my novel yet, then you need to start building one right now uh, and, and make yeah. sure that, you know, you don't, you're not waiting until you decide whether it's going to be published in Australia or America first and then think, okay, well, if it's going to be published in Australia, I'll build my platform there first. If it's going to be published in America, I'll build my platform there first. No, no, no. You build it now in both, either one or both of those countries. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Yeah, and also um, I've got a really good thought here. I'm just trying to think what it was because I got distracted <laughs> halfway through your sentence then. Um, oh, have a look at like what who's publishing similar things to what you're writing because mm. if you're finding that Australian publishers are publishing that kind of stuff, then that, that means that the Australian market is, is open to it. But mm. if you're finding that, that – the, the publishers in Australia are not publishing that kind of stuff, then clearly you would take it to the US. So you want to have a look to see where, you know, get pull out your favourite books from that genre or, you know, similar things to what you're writing. Have a look at where they're being published, who's publishing them. Um, and generally speaking, you'll find in the back um, in the acknowledgement section that each author will generally thank their agent. So have a look mm. at where that agent is based and, you know, kind of help that might help to narrow down your research a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do want to publish it in both places, make sure that you only approach Australian agents who do have uh, contacts in, who do represent, sorry, authors who have also been published in other countries. Well, in North America anyway. That's right. Don't just approach agents where the authors have only been published here. You want Mm. some kind of track record. That's right. All right. So let's move on to our platform building tip for this week. What have we got? Okay, well, this one was an interesting one. It came to me via Twitter. I do love a good tweet. Um, and it's from Natalie Hennekam. Lots of Natalies this week. Yeah, I'm not even sure if maybe it's the same Natalie. We don't even know. Um, if I want to adapt a Twitter account to be, um, to be my author platform for yep. writing children's books, do I, A, delete and start again, mm. B, scrub old sweary tweets, <laughs> or C, just continue on? What are your thoughts on that? So she's got an existing Twitter account. She wants to be a children's author. She's concerned oh. about some of the content of her current Twitter account mm. with regards to being a children's author. Mm. Should she, A, delete and start again, B, scrub old sweary tweets, or C, just continue on? What are your thoughts on that, Valerie? I think regardless of whether you do, um, you know, start a new account or stay with your old, your, your current one, scrub the sweary tweets anyway if you really want to write for children. Mm, that's what I think. That's yeah, my definitely. Exactly. My thought would be to scrub the sweary tweets and continue on. That mm. would be my that would be my thought because she already has an you know an account established and a basis. Yes. Um, and I think it's probably worth it. You know, just at this point having that conversation too about the fact that you have to remember, particularly if you want, if you're thinking you want to segue into uh, being an author, being a children's author, being any kind of author, that, you know, your social media accounts are probably the place where you need to put your best uh, possible self forward. Um, If you're, you know, depending on your style and, you know, if you're, if you're going to to be uh, writing very, you know, frank, straightforward, sweary books, then Mm. totally fine, go for it. Mm. Um, But if you're not, then you probably want to think about the fact that, you know, every tweet you send out is like a little, um, what, PR message in some ways. Mm. So you've got to present yourself as you, as you want to be seen and whether that's, you know, sweary tweet you or not, Mm. um, you have to think about that when you're doing it. Because everything lasts forever on the internet. It does. And you can scrub your sweary tweets, but you can probably imagine that they'll be archived somewhere on the on the web. So they'll be cached in somebody's mm. somebody's system. So, um, yeah, so I'd, I would delete them and just continue on because, I mean, the fact of the matter is most people are not going to trawl back through your Twitter account looking for swear words. Mm. Um, but I do think it's worth, you know, Getting rid of about, them anyway. Yeah, getting rid of them and just thinking about how you want to present yourself online. Yep. In the future, yeah. Absolutely. All right. And um, at least one of the great things Natalie is thinking about is actually building her author platform in terms of writing children's books. So good on you for doing that, Natalie. And uh, if you're interested in building your author platform, then make sure you check out Alison's course, which is awesome, How to Build Your Author Platform. Pretty straightforward, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it gives you step-by-step the exact things that you need to do to build your author platform, literally starting from scratch. If you've got no presence at all, it's going to take you to having a presence. So um, you can find out more about that at writerscenter.com com.au slash platform. All right. Now, we're almost at the end of this week's episode. Al, what are you doing in the coming week now that you're on the road to recovery? 
Oh, just catching up. You know, it's amazing how much like one or two days can put you behind. But no, I'm just, I'm still, I'm still working on NaNoWriMo. I'm still working on, you know, the writer book with Al. I mean, obviously um, I haven't done much for the last few days, so I'm way behind now, but that's okay because I'm still, you know, 20 odd thousand words up on where I was on the 1st of November. So I'm, I'm taking the win on that, on that, um, in that sense. And, mm. um, I have a feature story to write and yeah, just lots of writing Val, you know how I do. <laughs> lots of writing. You know well, how I do. At the Australian Writers' Centre, we're actually getting really busy to launch your next course, Woo-hoo. which is how to make time to write. Because as, as listeners can, uh, have, have heard, you fit a lot into a day or into a week. And it's often amazes me how you can fit it all in. So Alison has um, designed a new course and it's awesome because I've been through it and it's just fantastic. It's called How to Make Time to Write. And in addition to all of the um, strategies and steps that you need to take in order to make time to write so that you can actually write and, and actually put words down on paper or your fingers onto the keyboard, it includes this is the this is something that I think is fantastic. A thirty day boot camp. So when you decide you're ready, you press the button, and you will get you will be part of a thirty day boot camp where you will write ten thousand words by the end of the thirty days. And I just think that's so awesome because so mm. many people don't even get to that ten thousand words. They write you know their first three thousand and four thousand, and then they get you know, distracted. So this 30-day boot camp will get you 10,000 words in 30 days. So you can find out more at writercenter.com.au slash time. Mm. All right. Well, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontate.com and you'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate and Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and on Instagram where photos of my cats get way more likes than photos of anything else that I'm doing. And oh, no. <laughs> I have the same problem with Procrastipop. <laughs> and you'll find me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo. So thank you for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.